bit of background. Uh, we have this talking art event on the first Saturday of every month in this room. Uh, it's organised by the Blue Mountains Creative Arts Network and it's an event to invite and have conversations with artists in the Blue Mountains, the established artists, and we have conversations here and we podcast them. So we do a podcasting for half an hour it's an interview or conversation between usually two artists. And then we have time to involve everybody as they feel like participating in the conversation or asking questions or joining the discussion. So you'd be more than welcome to come along any first Saturday of the month at 4pm in this room. We'd love to see you. It's early days, so we're sort of building building a bit of a following, but um, depending on who's here, it depends on who comes along. So, welcome. I'm looking forward to this conversation with Roland. Keep them, save them, write them down so that you can um, ask Roland. Uh, next month, we'll be having a Brad's organising for a group of three photographers uh, in conversation. So if you're interested in photography or the diversity of photography styles, um, that will be happening here next month. And the following month we have Judith Martinez, uh, who's a local artist and uh, researcher on... Um, she's a really interesting artist. She's done some research in her heritage in Spain and she's uh, gone back to Spain as part of her research to investigate uh, an apartment that her family has rented for a couple of generations and she creates artwork from the documentation and the items that are still found in this room. So she's a really interesting artist, um, she lives locally and we're still organising who she's going to be partnering with yet. Um, but that will be a really interesting conversation to have. So just keep that in mind for the next two Talking Art events. Well, we're really um, delighted to have you, Thanks Roland, for along today. Um, I've known Roland for quite a few years. At least five years, I would. At least think. five years. At least five years, must probably be more than that. Yeah. I think it's yeah. a lot more than that. Yeah. <laughs> That's seven, As we eight. get older, our <laughs> memories fade. But I first knew you, Roland, because you're a word man, a book man. Well, you saw me at Springwood, yeah. Yes. You were coming back from Canberra from your course. And I got to know Roland through his interest in books and writing and literature. I had no idea he was an artist, but since I've met him and known him, I've watched this unfolding of this magnificent arts practice that we see quite frequently in galleries around, Braemar and Gallery yeah, 188. Braemar with Vic and Sharon at 188 and yes. out at Dargan at Gallery H. Yes. There's a new gallery that opened up last That's year. That's right, yeah, yeah, yes. Toplanitsky, yeah. Yes, so look, quite a few people here will know your work, so they'll be bringing some, some of your imagery and we've got two beautiful pieces of your work. Yeah, and there's a few smaller ones there and I've got cards and things there as well, so on the yeah. table that we'll have a look at later on. Um, so, Roland, when I realised you were an artist, I became very curious about your artwork and the way you represented the natural world. And it seemed to me like you were somebody who really engaged in a very intuitive but a thoughtful and relational way with the natural world. Would you like to sort of say how your relationship with the natural world and yeah, your look, practice? I'm in, in essence, I'm just a landscape painter. 
I really don't do anything else. And I've sort of, on purpose, sort of at one stage realized I just can't do everything. And then you sort of do part-time jobs and I had to sort of somehow narrow, narrow things down. I wasn't interested in portraiture. I did, however, like life drawing, which has sort of come through into the landscape anyway, because there's a relational connection there. But for me, it was always a love of landscape. Even as a kid, I, we went out to the bush quite often and we used to camp and so on. So that, that was that connection for me. And when I was doing technical college, I did a lot of the things that everyone does. You do your still lifes and your, and your life drawing and stuff. But it wasn't till after I finished, then travelled a bit and then came back to Australia that I sort of fell in love more and more with, with landscape and landscape painting, but it's always been more of a connection of my love of going outdoors mm -hmm. and being outdoors mm -hmm. and getting inspiration really from the landscape and just connecting to it. And then coming to the mountains, which is almost 25 years, has changed that dynamic even more so just because of where we live and you know things are right there at your doorstep as you saw where I live. Yes, yes. Uh, that you just look out the window, you don't necessarily have to travel very far. Yes. So, yeah, yes. so, you know, landscape is is really what I do. Yes, yes. I'm not really interested in doing anything, anything else, but it's more, you know, how I connect so with that places. So that has captured, the landscape has captured your imagination. That's yeah. your main interest. Yeah, because you, I think it's, as artists, and there's going to be a lot here, obviously, it's because we use our eyes and it's whatever sort of filters through there that sort of grabs us. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of other things have sort of influenced my interest in what I read, people that I've met over the years, you know, poetry, other uh, people that write, uh, and more so in the last few years, I suppose, looking at environmental issues and meeting people that actually work as academics in those areas, that you start to become more aware that there's actually more going on and, and sort of a sense of urgency of why I think it's important that people actually connect with landscape. I'm really curious yeah. about that yeah. because as I've got to know you, I'm very aware of connections that you have, people that you know yeah. and people that you actually seem deeply involved with who are either literary people or conservation yeah. or environment people so I'm really curious about how, how that sort of the how that has evolved for you in terms of that connection that you make with people and how that shapes you talk about urgency how how has that shaped what you Look, do? I used to think what's the point actually really of visual arts and there was maybe a period where I'd stopped painting for about a year. I was living in a certain house that this lady over here lives in now and I stopped for about a year and I thought look you know people go to the movies and they go to sports and they do this and that and what, what can actually visual arts really do? It's an old form of practice and even more so now with people using iPads and everyone thinks they're a photographer because they own a, a smartphone. And I just couldn't really make sense on how, you know, what's the, what's the point of actually doing a landscape? I mean, I was influenced by landscape painters like Van Gogh, who's a, who is in essence a painter of, of the spirit of place. Mm -hmm. uh, people like Fred Williams, Margaret Preston. Mm -hmm. But I also had, you know, sort of an amateur's interest in Aboriginal rock art, which was something that used to come in because I'd travelled, I've travelled throughout sort of Australia. 
and that sort of became a thing for me because I was always interested in reading anthropology and, and archaeology on the side so that yeah. was that sort of connection so then I met people and it all really happened you know according to uh, Joseph Campbell who says if you follow your bliss you it puts you on a track that you're always meant to be on and people who actually share in your bliss will actually overlap and intersect in your life and when I was about 26 I thought well let's see if this actually works and so I traveled and backpacked into the Northern Territory got interested certainly in indigenous culture and as I said the other week when we were chatting you know I got to Alice Springs so we're talking 30 years ago and I just thought this is another country you know Alice is it, it's been tidied up a bit more since the Olympics because they sort of wanted to clear the blackfellas out in a sense and that didn't just apply to Sydney that applied yeah. to other places but you know just seeing Aboriginals living in the Todd River and you'd go into shops and kids were shoplifting and all that sort of type of thing and then you'd go out at night and somebody would be thrown in the back of a paddy wagon it was a you know it was a sort of a, your senses are accosted because you do think well you know I don't experience any of this in my daily life and, th and yet this is part of Australia so I sort of came back and for a few years and actually really considered to stop painting and actually go on to do anthropology and I was actually made inquiries at Macquarie University to seriously look at it but then as someone I knew that worked with Aboriginal people said well you're not going to learn about Aboriginal people by doing field work and being an academic and so I sort of took the painting up again and at some point then decided to move to the Blue Mountains. At that stage 25 years ago there weren't a lot of galleries here I mean it's the best we've ever had it in the last two or three years since since David's moved in down there the Peraltas and so on there's actually been a real shift I mean it actually is funny that it's taken that long for it to become the city of the arts you know John Ellison coined the term and it just really was almost non-existent really for, for visual artists so I started just meeting people and, and it was follow your bliss and I ended up coming here I only knew one person and ended up finding other people who knew people that I knew and then eventually I met people like Di Johnson who did the gully plane who ended up becoming a very dear and close friend one of the few people I, I would allow into the studio if I was working on anything because not everyone gets in there so just so you know because <laughs> when you came over a week ago so uh, and talking to people and they you know here's somebody that was working in that field that was really interested in what I was doing and saw that what I was doing was important so and I was living from up as you know up near the gully and so it starts to sort of you form a different connection with a place because as I sort of said in the in the US, you know, it was a case of looking around saying, where are the Indians? Well, it was, it was like that 25 years ago. Where are the, where are the Aborigines? And, they, and, and the Gunnagara sort of went, that, that were he, sort of really went on the down low because they had children taken away from them at the gully as well. And so they sort of learned to be quiet. So until that sort of happened and that claim came through, then you started getting Aboriginal voices appearing in the community. So that was a sort of a thing. And then I met people like Mark Tredenick, the writer and poet who wrote The Blue Plateau. And then we connected. He was interested in what I was doing. And then really via him about 
eight or nine years ago, got invited down to attend a symposium at Macquarie University as a visual artist. And I haven't got an academic background at all, but it came through that, through a friend of his, Deborah Bird Rose, who sadly just passed away before Christmas, a renowned cultural critic and anthropologist who did some fairly major claims throughout the Territory. And here again was someone that was actually interested in what I was doing, where I just thought, well, you know, it's just, it's just, they're just pictures. You're working on land claims and doing these important things. You know, somebody else is producing collections of poetry and so on. What's okay? And then I went to a lecture down there by an academic from the US who now works on animal extinction. So that was 2009. And that was a big change for me because it was the first time that I'd heard the word Anthropocene used at all. And so he was talking about this major age of extinction and the rate of animal extinction that we have throughout the world. And what was humbling is that Jim also pointed out that we're not immune to actually becoming extinct on the planet. That we have this arrogance that we're actually at the top of the pecking order and that we will actually solve what's going on. And so people that I've talked to in academic fields, in some sense it's almost too late. It's all happening now. The ball's sort of rolling with climate change and whatever. And in many cases, we're not really going to be able to pull back, you know, because governments basically aren't doing anything. So all these people were interested in my art. And then I started seeing that actually it can also be a very subtle force for change. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting because I think as artists, we tend to work often in isolation and yeah. to lose a sense of that what we're doing has any value. You know, you put your work out there and you, you, you might sell a few works at an exhibition or something, but you sort of wonder, well, is this having any impact? So you were getting actually feedback from people around you who were involved in the same sort of thinking things that yeah, you were, yeah, in essence, but, yeah. and giving you affirmation that your, your artwork actually has a place in this whole kind of conversation. Tell me more I, about that. Cause well, because I think it's, that applies to all forms of art in one sense. You know, so whether people are dancing or making films or whatever, they're just different forms of, of communicating. Again, Indigenous people will most probably get it much sooner because they're used to operating in different ways and different modes of thinking. And because they do things like dance and they paint, etc. They get to see that these things can be connected to country and that it's actually important to do. So it's, it's like I, I was saying to you the other day, it's actually an interesting thing to talk about art because Matisse sort of said, you know, artists shouldn't, you know, shouldn't talk about art and then proceeded to do the opposite and talked a lot and wrote a lot about art. So, you know, there's a, you know, really if I was meant just to be doing talking I'd be a writer, okay. you know, okay. but I've actually found that I can actually communicate. Yes, I can talk, obviously, but yes, this is what that's the that's the that's actually the language that I use, and it works on a quite, as I said, a much more gentle, subtle sort of. It's a bit most probably like meditation, you know. The Dalai Lama says, you know, if if it's actually proven that it's it's not useful and it can't create peace and whatever, we're quite happy to look at it and we'll reevaluate re the situation and stop doing it. Yeah. I'm sort of paraphrasing. Okay. However, mm -hmm. it does it does actually have an effect because I know how looking at other people's art, and I don't just mean 
vet artists, but people who I know, and some of them are in this are in this room, that then how it actually makes me look at the landscape quite differently as well, and how it's how it's represented. And I mean, I had coffee with someone this morning who had said to me, they moved up here six months ago, and he said, oh, you know, the thing with your work is, it's making me look and actually want to get out there and look and to see what you actually see. Yeah, well, that's a really powerful And that powerful was just this morning, and that's it? a powerful statement. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. sort of gives you hope that there's something there. Yes. And not everything has to be a grand gesture. So for artists, as I said, yes, it's a solitary thing because yeah. you're working in that cocoon. Yeah. Which, which, as you say, again, too, may be very true for other uh, art forms. But I just love that sense of dialogue that happens for you in relationship to these other uh, forms of knowledge, if you like, ways of knowing the world that actually allows space for your art to emerge and to have its own voice. It's, re it's really interesting how, how that's come about. And it's also, I mean, we had this discussion because we had a good long chat the other day to try to nut something out because this was at the 11th hour <laughs> to do this event and the word spirit of place has been sort of bandied about and I was almost reluctant to use it because I haven't used it really in anything. But I'm a big lover of nature writing, particularly the Americans because I think their tradition is much... We, we don't really have a tradition here so their tradition is very strong of writers writing about place. And I think their connection, even though it's been brutal, they've had a brutal history as well, I think their connection to the indigenous culture uh, is much stronger than it is here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it was for me also, you know, it was, well, it's a spirit of place, but it's also in a sense much deeper than that. And there's an Aboriginal elder in the Kimberley who wrote, and I'm having to sort of quote the writer from La Trobe, David Tacey, who quotes this elder saying, we're actually a spirit place. And that's, they're two totally different yes. things yes. because it actually means that there's a sentience out in the landscape. Yes. And so you're traveling out there and for Aboriginal people, it is that thing that the landscape is, is aware that you're there, which is why they do the, you know, the proper welcome to countries, because there's that awareness, you know, that the country knows that you're walking on it. And okay. that changes your, your, yes. your thinking totally, that you're then engaging in that process. And it takes you out of what we're always meant to be as, as non-Indigenous people, which is to be predominantly secular in our, in our views. So we're, we're, it's okay for us to be political and be interested in land rights and all that sort of type of stuff but we're not allowed to actually have a, have a connection. And most indigenous people will actually, is, is actually the area that they actually want us to actually connect, is to connect on that level as well. That, that again is really interesting. It's almost like, well, the spirit of place and... Well, spirit place, yeah. Spirit it's place, it, yeah. so it, it has its own expression. Like the, yeah. the, the place itself is speaking and knowing you. That's right. Whereas we, perhaps Westerners, tend to look at, well, how do we represent this place and do we, can we express a sense of our own spirit of place? Or it's almost like there's a separation of that connection, that initial connection of 
being in a place that actually speaks of itself. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that look, sounded it's, it's, a little bit confused. Conf <laughs> yeah, because it's a confusing thing because we're used to it as a label spirit of place and it's almost become sort of a... Uh, yeah, it's just become a label basically. However, you can connect to places and you sort of sense there's something there and you yeah. try to capture that yeah. in your work and so yeah. Van Gogh paints Provence and yeah, yes, yes. we see Provence and the south of France through his eyes, you know, or George Rakeith as, you know, in the southwest yes. and there's that sort of depiction there. So I certainly know that that comes through in some of my work, I don't think in all of my work, because you have different connections to places. But again, I, I'd only sort of consciously formed all of that when I'd gone down to this symposium at Macquarie University and here were academics talking about the sentience of, of land. And I thought, well, these are academics. I mean, this is a bit bizarre. And what they're talking about is their own experiences and, and papers that they're writing, which is quite amazing mm -hmm. that they're writing these articles and then end up writing books which are, is about when they've been alone in the landscape and what's actually happened there. I suppose I'll, I'll give you an example, which is most probably the, the, one of the strongest ones that I can use, is back in about 2003, 2004, I travelled out to Broken Hill and I was putting work together for an exhibition out at Bathurst. And I only had an old hatchback uh, at that stage. I mean, I was taking it on dirt roads and doing all those foolhardy things that you, you know, get told not to do. And I went up to Matawinji National Park and it was in the middle of summer as well, so I had my swag. There were only maybe three or four other people at this campsite and everyone was sort of spread out. But that was good for me. However, getting there, I had a hell of a time. So I was about 130 kilometres out of Broken Hill when I hit a rock and it sheared off the sump and I was leaking oil and I'm stuck out in the middle of nowhere and then I'd sort of run and RMA and Broken Hill and hours later they sort of came and I'm out there and it's, you know, NRMA asks you stupid questions. I mean, I'm going to sidetrack a bit, but they do ask you stupid questions. What's the landmark marks around you? And they say, well, there's salt bush to the left and there's salt bush to the right. And actually it's ahead of a me as well. And, and how do you know you're actually 130 kilometres out of Broken Hill? And I said, well, because I always reset my odometer and it stopped at 130 kilometres. Wow. So, and they're not going to miss me when they come out. So I got towed back and, and I thought, oh, screw this. And I, then I was hobbled in, in Broken Hill. You're sort of walking around and all you want to do is get out somewhere and create art. And so I was stuck there. Eventually the car got repaired. What does Roland do? He heads, heads out and he's, you know, and he's hatchback, drives back out to Matawinji. I got there to a place called Homestead Gorge, which is where people predominantly camp and there's sort of a, a shower there and whatever and then that afternoon I thought because I was raring to go I'm going to head down to Matawinji Gorge which is a very famous uh, gorge and there's a water hole down there and everything across this creek bed and the sand wasn't that deep and the freaking car gets stuck it took me three hours I didn't have a shovel or anything I'd, I'd learned after that I dug myself out the back tires and kept on inching back backwards, got out, uh, had a massive migraine because of the heat, because it was January, and and then I thought, look, you're just not going to get to Matawinji Gorge, I don't know what it is, you can't go down there. So I stayed put, went down Homestead Gorge, actually, it was actually quite a, a life-changing 
place as an artist because I started really developing the pastels at that stage and they became artworks in their own right that I started selling. At that stage it was only just a plein air, you know, note-taking exercise for me. But there was an Aboriginal ranger out there, Muriel Bates, who's Barkindji, and Barkindji are actually down in the Lake Mungo area back south. And she came round to the camp just to check, you know, how I was going and said, look, there's an art site which is closed, but I'm asking the three or four people here I'll open the gate if you want to, you know, give me a donation, but I'll take it to the yard site. So that was really useful as well. And she was an interesting character because she, there was only a handful of us, and then she said, look, started, and she never pointed with her finger at things because of the fear of, you know, pointing at someone and pointing the bone. So she always had a stick and she was waving that around at things and look up there and whatever, that rock art and, and stuff. And then she told us a story of how she was still getting to know the area because it really wasn't her traditional land. And she'd gone out down some gully and this bird kept on flying backwards and forwards across the path. And all she knew was that she felt she just couldn't go down there. Mm -hmm. And when she talked to some elders, some of the men, they said, well, lucky you didn't go down there because you would have been in trouble because it's a men's site. A few days later she came to see how I was. I was at one stage, everyone cleared out, I was the only person there at that campsite. You know, no one around for miles, it was fantastic. And then this cool change had hit and it was freezing. And she came up to the campsite the next day with her daughter, who had actually come through the mountains and had said how misty it was and whatever. So I got this sort of feedback that there is this sort of climate connection between the mountains and out there. It's actually it was really interesting. And I said, oh, your story was interesting. And then I told her what had happened to me and how I decided I'm not going to go to Matawinji Gorge because there's something obviously keeping me away. And she said, you know, she just looked at me and said, you know, this is what we have trouble with white people, she said, and particularly the national parks because we operate in a different way and we can't get it across to even the national parks. How on certain times, all of a sudden, we can't go and do something or we can't go and do this. And, you know, and she was sort of most probably relieved to realise that, you know, not all of us are, yeah. in their eyes, we're toddlers in the yes. landscape. Yes, yes. We're not connected we're in the same not way, not aware. We don't have Because even little children would know yeah. more yeah. Yeah. than we yeah. do. Yeah. So yeah. that had sort of taught me that, yes, there are those things. I mean, I was aware of this sort of stuff before because of, I've always had that sort of bent towards spirituality, but yeah. it's sort of come really through more the Western traditions yeah. and whatever. You know, Carl Jung was asked in an interview about you know, different modes of operating and thinking and whatever, and he reckoned the Indians on the subcontinent, they'd sort of worked, they sort of thought they, they were coming out of the solar plexus, and, and he said, and Native Americans, in his experience, you know, they were, they were, they thought with the heart and that only a crazy person would suggest that you think from up here, that even a child knows that a person who thinks from there <laughs> is crazy. That's the person that walks around, it's like the village idiot. And the interviewer asked Jung, well, what, what does the European, what does the white person think with? And Jung was very quick and said, their tongues. <laughs> their what? Their tongues. Their tongues. Yeah, interesting. You know, so as artists, yeah, we've got to get out of out of that. Yeah. And I think that's again why 
politicians and whatever have such a uh, trouble connecting with indigenous people yeah. throughout yes. the world. Yes. Because it's it's a completely foreign way of operating. Yes. Look, you've given us too much yeah. with us today. Um, I, it's been a really wonderful journey for me, I'm sure for others. Um, what we're going to do, we'll, we'll round up the conversation now, but please stick around. Um, we, we can really be here till six o'clock, so if you want to um, talk some more with each other or with Roland, um, please feel free to do that. Thank you everyone for coming. Yes, thank you. Um, and we'd be more than welcome, we'd love to see you again. Um, but let's give Roland a round of applause. <laughs> And I have a wonderful talking art team. So at the back there, we've got Brad and uh, Ian who support and help help out when they're able. And uh, the podcast will be available on the Talking Art website, which is talkingart.com.au. Uh, so you'll be able to go and have a look and um, hear the conversation with Roland again and also look at some of the other podcasts that we've got up. Thank you, everyone.